is the Stars and Bacteria podcast. I'm Jas, and you're listening to episode three, a conversation with Dr. Matt Wilson. Before starting his own company, UMED, Matt was a doctor specializing in anesthetics and was also a medical lead in the Royal Marines. In this episode, we get an insider's look into the founder's journey. Matt discusses the current problems with clinical trials and how UMED is on a mission to fix these, potentially changing the lives of millions of people. We discuss why big data may not be the new oil, whether great founders are born or made, and the valuable lessons Matt has learned along the way through both success and failure, whether this is how to raise funding for your startup, understanding the role of luck, and knowing which advice to ignore or take on board. And Matt shares his one key piece of advice for anyone thinking about starting their own business that could save them a lot of time, money, or hassle later down the line. Today, we have with us Dr. Matt Wilson, founder and CEO of UMED. Thank you for joining us today, Matt. Thank you, Jess. Matt, would you like to give us a, an overview of your journey from being a clinician to a founder? Yeah, absolutely. I, I was originally an anaesthetist in the NHS, and before that, actually a, a doctor in the Royal Marines and the Royal Navy as well. I always felt like there was something within my clinical work that didn't entirely fulfill me. And that's not to say that I didn't enjoy my clinical time enormously. I did. But I always had this, this slight itch to scratch. And it actually started as cheesy as it sounds. I was on a flight going to northern Norway for a military exercise. And I picked up Inc. magazine on the way out. And uh, I kind of read it cover to cover because I didn't really have anything else to read. And I was really inspired. I was, I was like, this is what I want to do because there's so much opportunity, so much autonomy. That's what really got me interested in building my own business and building it in tech as well, which is something I've also always been interested in. Um, so that was really the seed. And then through that, as a completely naive individual to how to build a company and to raise capital, I just started out and started talking to people, going to events. Eventually was then fortunate to find a few individuals to initially back me in what was my first attempt at building a company, which wasn't successful. But those backers obviously saw something in me and what then became a much more mature idea, which is UMED now. And they essentially continue to back me as early angels into what UMED is now. And from there, we've been able to raise venture capital investment from a London VC. So Matt, our next segment is called overrated or underrated. So essentially what I'm going to do, I'm just going to throw a few terms at you. Uh, and I would like for you to say whether you think they are underrated or overrated and feel free to elaborate as much or as little as you want. Are you ready? Sounds great. Yeah, sounds great. I'm ready. Okay. So the first one, telemedicine. Underrated. It's now a lot more rated than it was since the start of COVID. And I think for me, that's been a really interesting part because there's been an awful lot of discussion about the opportunity, but the reality has been one of a limited uptake, which has really been the rate determining step to, to its success. And now suddenly that barrier has disappeared out of necessity through COVID. Mm -hmm. And we've seen the huge opportunity that that presents. I mean, some of my colleagues, clinical colleagues who are now GPs, they went from doing 10% telemedicine or remote consultation and 90% in person to that being flipped overnight. And they're not going back because they've suddenly realized there's huge, huge efficiencies in using that as a mechanism to, to drive clinical care. The next one, wearables. Or overrated because there's, I think, a limited amount of clinical value that you can extract from most wearables. And I, and I think it's probably also important to say that I appreciate that's a huge term, wearables, and it extends from your Apple Watch right the way through to clinically rated 
wearable technologies that can do lots of clever stuff. So I think I think I'll qualify that by saying definitely overrated at the moment. I think particularly in terms of of its clinical value, is very limited today. Though I can see how over time those technologies will mature to be more useful, but broadly mm-hmm. overrated. The field of preventative medicine. Oh, underrated. I've got a bit of a I've got, I've got a bit of a, a dirty secret, which is that I considered a career in public health uh, at one point, which is extremely different from anesthesia. But the reason why is because I've I found the whole area of preventative medicine fascinating, and and ultimately that's the key. That and it, and it's been the key since John Snow. But you know the the amount of people he was able to save from that sort of initial preventative medicine, you know, initiative of taking off the dirty water pump handle. That field of epidemiology and preventative medicine has grown since. You know, that's the answer really. Because and I'll come on actually. I know you want to talk about clinical trials, but yep. one of the huge challenges that we've got as an industry, as a as a healthcare and life science industry, is that the low-hanging fruit has gone in terms of treatment. Mm-hmm. We've invented vaccines, we've invented antibiotics, we've invented the easy treatments, and now we're stuck with these really hard and expensive treatments to, to develop and manufacture and implement. And actually, the answer is to go upstream and to go up closer to the source of the problem. VC funding as a means of capital for startups. Underrated. Mm-hmm. I would say that as a VC, probably probably as a VC funded company. I, I think it obviously depends on the type of company that you're building and the type of innovation that you're creating. I think the reason why VC funding works so well in the context of tech in particular is because tech has a huge amount of upfront capital that's required to get to a certain point which I haven't found any meaningful way of being able to capture that funding through, say, grants in the way that you can with VCs. You can't ask for a grant with an idea. You have to have some kind of evidence, if it, depending on the grant size. I mean, there's certain small grants that you can definitely get. But if you, you can't sort of picture Innovate UK and say, I've got this great idea for how we can improve clinical trials. Can you give me X amount of money? It doesn't, doesn't really work like that. What they want to see is a, a progression of, of validation points, which before they give you the amount of cash that you require, there's just a mismatch, basically, is what I'm saying, between, between essentially the funding that's available and the proof points that they require. They're not going to give you a million pounds for something that's very immature. They're going to give you a million pounds once you've actually got something that's quite mature that is then looking to you're looking to then run a clinical study and to validate certain proof points. If you had a one in 10 success rate of the Innovate grants in terms of what they're funding, it would probably be looked upon very negatively mm-hmm. as, a, as a program. They, all of the people that were evaluating Innovate would be like, why, why has only one of these organizations been successful? But it may be that actually what they end up with is, is 10 relatively modestly you know, successful programs or, or significant numbers of, sort of modestly programs, but, but not something that's going to change the world. I think that's the thing that VCs are really good at doing is, you know, and I've sat in VCs that have said, look, I'm, I'm, I'm only here to invest in companies that are going to achieve a 1B valuation, you know, or are going to have some substantial impact, you know, in changing the world of healthcare. You know, that's never part of an Innovate UK grant <laughs> application. The concept of big data in healthcare. Oh, overrated. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us more. As a word, I think it's overrated. I think the value in data, of course, is enormous if we can integrate it and use it effectively. And I think we're still only seeing the start of that. I think the word and the concept and how it's been used by many, I think is overrated because it suggests that there's some easy way to throw a whole load of data into a big pot, throw some data scientists at it, and then suddenly there's going to be this sort of magical, magical value and insight that's extracted from it. 
I think we're not there yet. The role that luck plays in determining the success of a startup. I'm going to give what my answer is, which is overrated. Mm-hmm. And I say that I say that with an extremely biased opinion in the sense that I'm, I'm a startup founder. Yeah. And I think my actions and my team, and of course the idea that are going to make this company successful, hand on heart, is there some luck along the way? I suspect there is. I think it's very difficult for me as an individual or any individual founders to say whether or not luck has played a part because the sample size, I think, is just you know an N of one. I think I can look back and think at some some of the serendipitous introductions that have been made to me that have ultimately been very beneficial. But equally, I think, you know, somebody externally may look and hopefully say, well, Matt, you know, there were some really dark times here where things weren't going right. And the decisions that you and the wider team took were the thing that made it successful. But I'm, I'm sure luck plays a part. And certainly there's, there's undoubtedly individual examples of where luck has made a huge difference to a specific company. I'm curious to know how much your background in the military perhaps is responsible for this mindset of yours where you've acknowledged that luck may well play a role, but it's more about the onus lies with you and in your decision making and that of your team and the idea that you have comes across as it's an attitude embedded from your military background or would that have been there anyway? There's a sort of military phrase, which is no plan survives first contact with the enemy. I think that's true of startups as well. When you speak to funders, they all recognize that actually what the very well-defined plan that you've come to them with as an early stage startup is not what actually is going to happen. We play this game where we have this sort of beautiful business model and financial model, which goes out to sort of three, five years with the exact number of hires and you know everything in there. We all know that that's not going to be what the business looks like. But of course, course, you've got to have a plan. But I think the reason why VCs and investment community more broadly place so much emphasis on founders in that early stage startup, that there's going to be so many things that are going to come up, both technologically, from a strategy, from an event, from a, just a, a luck or bad luck sort of perspective, that you know, it's ultimately about how you navigate that. Every single founder that I've met that's been successful is they have just tenacity. They just have this sort of tenacity and fortitude mm-hmm. to just keep going. And I, I think that's a key part of it. When you get turned down by X number of funds, do your own evaluation to make sure that it's not something that you're doing that's wrong. But once you've got the conviction that what you're doing is a good idea and you've done everything you can to essentially optimize your pitch, then just keep going. The phrase that you used uh, in the military where you said, no plan survives first contact, it immediately reminded me of the Mike Tyson quote where he said that everybody has a plan till they're punched in the face. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Same kind of idea. Yeah, yeah same kind of idea. And one of, one of the kind of senior military guys that I used to work with he always said, you know, my plan is loads of smoke and straight down the middle, which is just like, he just meant lo- throw loads of smoke grenades in and just run straight down the middle and shoot everybody that you can find. And, <laughs> and, and it, was a, it was a tongue-in-cheek quote, but he kind of said, that's just, that's just what works every time, just loads of smoke and straight. And, and I sort of, you know, in a completely different world, get on with it and, yeah. and work it out as you get along, uh, go along. And I, I think that, and I'm sure Mike Tyson would probably share that, you know, once you've been punched in the face, you just have to work out a way to punch back. Matt, for some of our listeners who may not be as familiar, could you give them a brief overview of you know, what the clinical trials process is like? For clinical studies, when you really break it down, what you're doing is finding a group of individuals 
group of patients with some specific criteria, a disease or on a certain medication, etc. And you're then in a very structured way collecting some data from them. And then sometimes you'll also then be breaking those groups down into two groups or more where you then give different interventions and that allows you to then evaluate the differences between those groups. So sometimes sometimes there is an intervention, sometimes there's not. When there's not, it's called an observational study. And when there is, it's called an interventional study. But, but if you break it down, essentially all you're doing is finding a specific group, implementing an intervention or not, and then capturing some structured outcome data from those individuals over a period of time. The, the challenge with it is that that's really hard to do. That's really hard and expensive to do. There's also an enormous amount of regulation that sits around that process to make sure that the answers that we're getting are actually the correct one. You know, I sort of alluded to the challenges. One is it just takes a huge amount of time and a huge amount of cost to execute those. The other challenge rather is that those studies are just getting more and more complex. Part of the reason they're getting more complex is something that I mentioned earlier on, which is that the low-hanging fruit is gone. We're not making aspirin anymore and trialing that. We're now at a point where the new drugs and treatments that are coming to the market are all pretty complex stuff. And because of that, the the studies and the evaluation criteria that need to go into that are also more complex. And you're getting a lot more failures before you get any successes. So what we need to do is just spread the net a lot wider, which again is hard if those clinical studies are expensive. So instead of having a failure rate of one in a handful of clinical studies, there's now a much higher rate of failure because it's just more difficult to find things that work. And there was a, I can't remember who it was, there was the individual that said the really hard thing about the life science industry or pharmaceuticals is you've got to be better than the Beatles. And he said, and, it, and what he meant by that is that every every new drug that comes out will always be compared to the generic that's on the market. So if you've got, say, you know, a statin, well, if you want something that fixes your cholesterol, it has to be better than a statin, which is, and because eventually these drugs go off patent, they become extremely cheap. So your new expensive drug that's going to be better than a statin has to be really a lot better than a statin to justify the huge cost that it's going to take to invent that drug and then ultimately sell it in the market. That creates this extremely high bar for innovation in that life science space. They're the two big issues. So one is a process issue. How do we actually find and conduct these clinical studies in, a, in, a, in an efficient way so we can drive scale? And then the second is a much broader issue, which is it's just harder It's going to, and it's going mm-hmm. to continue to get harder to find, find new treatments. What is UMED and how does that fit in here? What UMED's done is our technology has essentially created a, a one-way mirror that sits between healthcare and life sciences that enables life science organizations to interact with patients and their health data, but without exposing the patient's identity. Mm-hmm. And it does that in an automated fashion. So what that means is that we've essentially translated that manual service sector into an automated SaaS style platform. As a life science industry, you can find these patients, you can engage them, you can collect data from them, you can consent them in an end-to-end process that's fully automated across a whole network of healthcare providers. And that ultimately unlocks huge efficiency as well as capacity in the system to be able to deliver more of these studies ultimately to obviously benefit patients in society. Right. So it sounds like you have a relationship with life sciences organizations, healthcare providers and patients. How does that look like exactly? So what we have is a network of healthcare providers that have essentially joined our network, Mm -hmm. our our healthcare partners. We integrate with their electronic health record systems and then act on their behalf to then essentially match patients with inside their patient populations to these, these clinical research 
opportunities. Once those healthcare providers have said, actually, yes, we're really interested in this specific program, they then, through the platform, give instruction to us to actually execute that on their behalf. So from the patient's point of view, all of the communication is coming from their recognized healthcare provider, but it's actually UMED powering all this under the hood. If you were going to start UMED today, what would you have done differently? The thing I would have done is spent at least six months, if not a year, not trying to raise money, not trying to create business plans or or pitch decks. I would have just spent a year talking to people. Mm -hmm. I would have blitzed LinkedIn and, and and I would have spoken to, and I would have gone to a bunch of events. I would have just talked to people. I'd go, hi, I'm Matt. I'm a doctor. I'm really interested in this space. I've got a few ideas. Can, can I borrow 20 minutes of your time to chat to you about it in your perspective? And I think that would have had two effects. One is that it would have allowed me to get to the much further on in terms of maturity and defensibility of the business model before I started. And it also then builds you connections because if you meet people that like your ideas, you know, they're then willing to help you. They'll introduce you to other people who can then introduce you to funders or to strategic introductions that could, for example, for us have helped us drive adoption of our healthcare network faster and earlier on. So I think there's you know, and it costs nothing or very, very little to attend a handful of events and spend a bunch of hours on LinkedIn speaking to a few different people. Just on the thought of LinkedIn and what you mentioned earlier about recruiting patients, one thing I was thinking about before when I was reading about UMED or just in general about clinical trials is whether these social media companies, be it LinkedIn, Facebook, maybe even Instagram, do, do they have any role to play in trying to help recruit patients for clinical trials, given the vast amount of data they already have? I think they do. And, and there are some companies that are looking at this. There's, there's a company called TrialSpark in the US. There's organizations like Patients Like Me as well, which are kind of US-based. And they essentially utilize social media campaigns to find patients for clinical studies. Some of them are doing it quite effectively. And I think that's a fantastic resource. There are challenges, though, about that direct-to-consumer approach to recruitment. One of them is it's actually still quite a high cost. So going direct-to-consumer, you are incurring a significant amount of cost on a case-by-case basis to find these relevant patients. The second is that you're ultimately relying on entirely on the patient submitted data to validate whether or not that patient is going to be suitable. And the clinician is in the loop. So you then have to recruit sites that are going to run the study and then match these patients geographically to where these sites are. Now, there are some companies, again, like sort of TrialSpark and and others that are more supporting remote-based clinical trials. Another one is called Medible. And so you actually don't, you don't have any site. You get contacted on Facebook. Hi, do you have, you know, diabetes and are you on these drugs? We'd love to run a study. And then you get sent an app people contact you remotely and, and the whole the whole trial is conducted entirely remotely. And that's also a really exciting opportunity, though ultimately it won't work for every circumstance. And there are certain, and I'd say the vast majority of clinical studies need to have the patient's regular clinician in the loop for various different reasons, both in terms of data collection and in terms of actually understanding how that drug's then going to be used in the real world when it comes to regulatory approval. So there's lots of moving parts, lots of complexity. I definitely think, you know, they do have a big part to play and, and we're starting to see that already. Is it the panacea? No, I don't think it is. Trying to understand a bit about your mindset as a founder and CEO, in your opinion, do you think great founders or CEOs, are they born or are they made? 
I think startup founders have a particular set of traits that are very different mm-hmm. to probably the general population, but, but certainly very different from senior management in established companies. And I think that is associated with some basic personality traits that are seemingly quite pervasive across all of the different founders that I've met. Um, And I've I've spoken a bit about them already. So I think one is sort of tenacity and this want to not fail. (laughs) And also this burning desire to do something at scale, to do something that really has impact and impact for people is different. You know, so some people that might just be making money for a lot of founders, it it is their measure of impact is actually how, how how much money they can make and how big they can grow the business. For others, it's impact can you have on society by creating an exceptionally successful business. And again, most of the founders that I've met probably fit into that category. And what I recognize is that the financial success of a company is essentially a, a surrogate marker of the impact that you're having on society. If you've got a very successful revenue generating successful company, whatever financial metrics you choose, that is a good indicator that what you've created is something that is having a meaningful impact on society. Society, particularly in the context of healthcare. So going back to your original question, I think we're all kind of shaped by the events in our childhood. And I, I don't think we're necessarily born with a set of traits. I think the competitiveness I have with my brothers and yeah. you know, my, my experience I've had with the Royal Marines and lots of other things have shaped those personality traits. What I have noticed is that whether they're shaped or whether or not you're born with some of those traits, that there is a relatively consistent set of, of personality traits that seem to be pervasive with inside founders. In my experience from people who are interested in the space, I've come across individuals who fall along this sort of range and on one end of the range, and I'm, I'm characterizing slightly, you have individuals who come up with an idea that they have and they feel that something like this doesn't exist and it's a no-brainer that this is going to do well. And there's almost an element of confirmation bias because they're really trying to affirm all the information that this is going to be a success. And on the extreme other end, you know, you've got individuals who come up with a certain idea, but then they immediately begin to doubt and they think, well, there's probably a reason why it doesn't exist at the moment. There's a reason why other people people haven't tried it, or perhaps people have tried it and it hasn't worked out. So what's to say that I'm going to be able to change this? And they let go of that idea. Where do you think one should be on that scale between those two ranges in order to try and maximize your chances as a founder? Well, I, th- I think it's interesting as well, because you're, you're right, there's also a huge amount of bias, I think, in the in how we review founders, uh, in the sense that there's obviously a big difference between a founder and a successful founder. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that's really a really interesting exercise is to look at a very broad range of successful founders. And I think it's also very important to look outside of, you know, your high profile sort of Silicon Valley success stories to, you know, successful founders that don't necessarily shout and, and tweet about it, but have been extremely successful. And you don't hear about them, but they're, they're still being extremely successful. I think it's important to say that I think there is some confusion and expectation that as a founder, you should fit a certain a certain personality in being this gregarious Silicon Valley-esque individual, which I don't agree with. But I think when you look at what successful founders on that spectrum, I think they all fit firmly in the middle of that. Because I think if you have this blinkered belief that what you're doing is definitely right you're going to get disappointed because the vast majority of the time either you know some part of your some part of your theory or assumptions are going to be wrong and it's also not just you know building a business isn't just one idea or one assumption it's about how do you translate that into something that's successful so you might have an idea for a new product but actually there's a whole bunch of other assumptions about you know well how does that fit into the market how am i actually going to sell that product how mm-hmm. am i going to get it adopted you know so many different factors that go from 
from having a specific idea about how we can improve something to making a successful company. And those people that are just blinkered and think that what they're doing is 100% right, I don't think get very far. Equally, on the other end, you have to have some conviction in your belief. So I think the people that I've seen do really well are ones that sit in the middle where you say, if I get some negative feedback, I'm going to reflect on that. I'm going to essentially evaluate whether or not that feedback has, has an element of truth to it. And then I can either do one of two things. I can either then take that on board and adapt my strategy or I can ignore it and decide that it's not good advice and, and carry on. And I think you have to be quite purposeful about that because you get so much feedback as a founder, positive and negative, that you have to have some way of sort of triaging the advice that you get. The most obvious time is when you're getting feedback from VCs or funds, you know, and the ones that say no, always ask them why no, they normally tell you, but you have to realize that not all of them are right as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they, they pass on stuff all the time that ends up being a really successful business. So so just because it's coming from a from a VC doesn't mean that they're right, but you should definitely listen to what they say and evaluate what they've said and decide whether or not, you know, what they're saying is right. And I suspect it's quite difficult to tell the difference between what is good advice and what is bad advice. And it's probably only easier to do so in retrospect. And you've mentioned, you know, triaging between the various amounts of advice that you're getting. How hard is that exactly to do? Um, I I think that's the hardest, the, the single hardest thing to do as a founder is to is to know which advice to listen to. Mm-hmm. And I think interestingly, as you, as you progress through, you get more and more people wanting to give you advice. And, and interestingly, more and more people that are quite senior wanting to give you advice. And, and, and again, I think that's, and it's fantastic that you can get the opportunity to speak to these people. But I think the same thing applies. And it, it comes back as well to, you know, some people have got to where they have through luck or through through doing something that maybe was very applicable within a, within a certain domain, but isn't necessarily generalizable. And so just be very thoughtful and try to be very analytical about who you're getting advice from and whether or not to listen to it. And tying in this balance between conviction and doubt with the tenacity that you mentioned earlier, one thing I've always thought that it must be incredibly difficult to strike the right balance between knowing when to keep persisting through difficulties and through various downward moments versus knowing when actually this is probably not worth investing my time in anymore and I don't think this is going to be sustainable in the long run and just calling it a day. From your experience, trying to keep objectivity of that, navigating between those two points. Can you tell us a bit about that? Because I know that the first version of UMED is different from what UMED currently is. Yeah, rather confusingly, it had a sort of similar name, but they're completely different businesses. And yeah, I think what I've tried to do is actually set time-limited decision points in, just for me personally, they were kind of normally associated with with either Christmas or birthday, um, <laughs> just because they're, they're sort of dates that you remember. And I was like, you know, if, if in a year's time at my birthday or by Christmas, you know, these things haven't happened, I'll call it a day. And I think that's the, again, the, like the only way that you can really do it because it's so easy to, to have this self-fulfilling sort of conviction that if I just keep going for a bit longer, it will all be okay. My experience with a few med 1.0 was when I actually sat back and reflected, I realized that we hadn't scaled in any meaningful metric over the last 12 months. When you evaluate it as a business, there were just certain fundamental parts about it that were wrong in terms of our cost user acquisition in that specific model that weren't right. And that wasn't going to change. And that was also then being validated by the feedback I was getting from various different individuals, including funders. At that point, it was clear to me that that wasn't ever going to be a successful business. Again, not necessarily a bad idea, but Mm -hmm. but not a successful business. And 
then that was the trigger for me to then pivot to what UMED is now. Do you think there is such a thing as, you know, arriving too late or too early in the market with your startup idea? And and if so, do you think just being misaligned with the right time frame that has a big impact on whether the startup is likely to succeed or not? Yeah, totally. Actually, going back to telehealth, I think that's a really good example. I mean, right. there's a, a graveyard of telehealth startups that have been developed over the last 10 years. One, actually, I were part of a sort of incubator program in, in New York called J Labs New York with Johnson Johnson. And there was a there was a sort of wearable telehealth product that was being developed there and they didn't succeed. You know, they, they had to fold because it was just the wrong time. What they were doing was actually very interesting because it was a sort of clinically validated wearable technology, which sits, I think, on that much more useful end. But, you know, if you look at telehealth, if you try to do a telehealth startup five, 10 years ago, the uptake was just really poor mm-hmm. because not because it wasn't a good idea and not because it doesn't have huge value. One of my um, former anesthetic colleagues started a telehealth startup about three years ago now with GPs and he's just nailed it absolutely flying because Mm -hmm. now's the right time to do it and there's huge opportunity in the market so yeah I, I think timing's key. Do you think there is a a neglected topic or area, you know, in the realm of health tech that no one really seems to be looking at, but perhaps it deserves more attention? There's a a really interesting company called Closed Loop Medicine. Mm -hmm. And what they've done is they've developed an app-based technology which will be prescribed alongside certain drugs. You'll actually not get prescribed uh, amlodipine for your high blood pressure. You'll get prescribed CLM amlodipine, and that will be a drug and the app together. And the app will help you manage dosing. It will help you keep track of of your hypertension and provide other sort of wider disease modification strategies around it as well. And I'm very conscious I'm trying to pitch pitch CLM. Uh, <laughs> and there's, 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 bits, there's bits here that I probably have, have not got quite right, but that's the principle. I think the, the reason why I think that's so interesting is because you're not trying to you're not trying to replace a drug with an app in the way that some digital therapeutics are doing. What you're trying to do is essentially enhance the value of that drug or that product by utilizing digital technologies. And I, I, I kind of feel that that's an area of health technology which there's huge opportunity in because it's not trying to reinvent the wheel it's not saying let's get rid of this and use this instead but actually augmenting what we've got using health tech do you think doctors should be prescribing things which are not just drugs or medication an exercise routine that patients should stick to a more detailed breakdown of nutrition plans comprehensive sleep cycle timetable for patients to follow do you think that's done enough I think it should definitely be done more. And if you just think about it from a pure economics and number needed to treat kind of scenario, if you look at certain interventions, non-pharmaceutical interventions, you know, the number needed to treat to actually get a better outcome is is extremely low. And so prescribing exercise with a gym membership, I don't know the studies, I don't know the detail on that, but if the evidence supports it in the way that you would give a drug, the number needed to treat is X to to get the result that you want. And, you know, the, the cost is Y, you know, it's bound to come out just as well, if not better than many of the pharmaceutical options that are out there. So again, I think it's behavioral societal change that needs to happen to drive that, not not a lack of tech or ideas. My perception is that the idea that you will get prescribed a gym membership and an exercise routine, I think is still just foreign to most people. From the behavioral component, if a patient was to go to a GP surgery and the GP is telling them you need to exercise more, eat healthier and quit smoking, but perhaps maybe being mildly controversial when I say this, but let's just assume that the GP themselves are not in a great state. You know, they, yeah. BMI might be raised. They don't look like they exercise enough. Do you think that GPs have some sort of responsibility to remain in good health in order to be able to recommend this patient and actually see greater compliance with this or are the two unrelated? 
it's a really difficult ask for GPs to essentially get them to modify their own health behavior. But on a, in a completely different world, in my time in the Royal Marines, they, you had physical training instructors. They, they were the guys that beasted you all day and every day. Mm-hmm. And they never, ever asked you to do something that they couldn't do themselves. Yeah. So they, you know, they were they were faster than you. They were, you know, stronger than you. You knew that if if they were trying to get you to do something, that they could do the same. And undoubtedly, that's that has a huge impact on your own personal motivation to do that. So yeah, I mean, I I, I think it's a huge ask to expect GPs to be fitness gurus and and <laughs> and all be super fit because we you know we've all we're all humans as well and got our own yeah. challenges. But I do think it's it's a key piece of the whole puzzle. What is the one view that you hold in this space, which most people would disagree with you on, but you believe that you're right about? So I think one of the things that's just taken as, as being you know, the status quo is that the value of health data is in the data itself and that somehow this is a commodity that has, has some intrinsic value like gold or oil. I think that's broadly not true. I think the value of health data is what we can derive from it, how we can deliver more effective healthcare and research opportunities from the health data, building building services on top of it in a more efficient way, not trying to use it as some intrinsic commodity in itself. Of course, it does have some value and there's some, some value that we can extract from it. But I don't think that's, I think the value that we can build on top of that as a foundation is much greater than, than its intrinsic value. Brilliant, Matt. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure. Great. No, thank you so much for your time and look forward to chatting again at some point soon. And that was this week's episode. I was surprised by Matt's honesty and openness in speaking about his experiences, and he shared many insightful and practical lessons he has learned along the way. If you enjoyed the episode, or even if you didn't, please let us know by leaving a comment or any feedback in either the Instagram or LinkedIn posts. And to catch all future episodes, head over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts click subscribe. And if you could leave a rating, that would be great. This is the Stars and Bacteria podcast. I'm Jas. Thank you for listening. Till next time.